Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, wait, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello and welcome to another The Things That Made England. It's our fourth episode it is and our we're fourth. up to 1945, when yes. things are going to change massively. I'm feeling yeah. good, actually. I'm feeling very good, except it's the 20th century. I'm only interested in things that have been dead for 100 years. So you're just about to warm up to the general strike. We've got another one coming anyway, haven't we? So that's great. We are living through somewhat of a winter of discontent, aren't we? We are, we yes. We are, which is, has scary parallels to 1979 and to the general strike, but we're in 1945. So the war is over, at least in Europe, by the time yes. this election uh, takes place. And an election is called. This is going to be a historic one, and it's going to mark the first time that the Labour Party is actually going to win a majority in the House of Commons. Yes, we've had a couple of Labour governments before, but they've had to cobble together coalition by having whether it's the liberals say oh go on you go do it or having some kind of liberal support but now we have clem attlee who's going to be one of the lines of british politics can i ask you a question who won the war in terms of the political parties who did best out of the war it has to be the Labour Party. Yes, it, it does have to be the Labour Party, correct. Does. What we have is Churchill, who's seen as the person who single-handedly holds together the nation's will and gives us the strength to go on and gives us great rousing speeches. But there's something called the Beveridge Report, which is published in November 1942, which is penned by liberal economist William Beveridge, who proposes widespread reforms to the system of social welfare what he identifies as the five giants on the road to reconstruction. Want, disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness, I tell you, idleness. Yes, got to get rid of that idleness. This is incredibly popular with 
the public on what people want to see from going through war and the privations of war is a new society. Actually, there's a sea change in terms of people coming together communally, going through this hardship of fighting the Germans, and people want to see a result for this. So the 1945 election is going to see a large swing towards Labour. The party is going to win 393 seats compared to the Conservatives' 213. This gives Labour a clear, comfortable majority, allowing them to implement their ambitious policy of reform. It's interesting they win so effectively. And one of the things I meant about having a good war is that their leaders now were very well known because they'd served in this government and done very well. And so they're much further forward than they used to be. And I think somebody said that the policies that Labour were advocating were essentially the kind of policies that had won the war, the kind of statist approach of organised and directed Labour and economy. So there's a swing to Labour because they don't really trust the Conservatives to deliver the promise. And they think that Labour will simply be carrying on what they've already been doing during the war on the coalition government. Absolutely. And one thing which I didn't realise until I did my research is that there's a new provision for old age pensions, which comes in 1940. So it backs up your point that people are actually quite used to the government directing the economy and the economy has come through the war. Yes, we still have rationing. And that's going to be one of the reasons why the 1951 Labour government, even though they think they're going to do really quite well, doesn't. But ultimately, people are used to the government directing the economy and they don't see it as, a, as an anathema anymore. So we now have Clem Attlee, who's come to power. And I think if you look at any lists of most significant British prime ministers, he's always up there. He is going to help remodel British society. Some of the things that this government is going to do, it's going to nationalise key industries such as coal, electricity, gas and transport. It's going to, and it's really looking at fairness, but also efficiency when it takes control of these key drivers of the industry. So we had lots of smaller companies and there's a rationalisation, let's say within the coal industry. And also there's a, a real sense that these things which are so important to the economy should be in public ownership as well. Business sense to be made for it, but then also a utopian kind of fairness sense. There's going to be an expansion of welfare programmes and a much more comprehensive system of social security. So the Liberals in 1906 give us the start of this and really the Labour Party, the Labour government going to really solidify all of this and make sure that there are unemployment benefits for the unemployed sickness and for those in old age. And actually, they give more money to it. Introduction of the Family Allowance Act, which I don't know if you had to do this every Saturday, David, but I did. Had to go up to the post office with my mum's little family allowance book and go and get and you get a stamp on it. The post office woman would give me, I forget how much it was, might be about £2.50, which in 1979, it's a lot of money. It was a lot. My mother would never have trusted me with such an important (laughs) job, Royfield. You are indeed honoured. And this was always in the mother's name, the family allowance. So it gave women a little bit of independence away from their husbands. There's going to be reforms to the educational system. The school leaving age is going to be raised to 15. One of the kind of key things of this government, which I must admit as a Brummie chafe against, is the New Towns Act. There's a real sense that the Germans have come and they've bombed a significant part of London This gives an opportunity for councils all throughout the country 
not just to rebuild the slums, but actually to build new housing. So that's where you have a real budge of public housing all throughout the country. It comes from this New Towns Act. And one of the things is it also creates places like Milton Keynes. You have all these new towns, but there is this sense of civic renewal. There was a national plan for how the British economy would work post the Second World War. But it all comes from a great place. But they did some wrong things with this New Towns Act. Also, this government is going to start the process of decolonialisation India, Pakistan are going to become independent. We have the start of the new Commonwealth. But David, if I say to you, 1945 to 1950 government, what springs to mind? It is, in fact, the National Health Service. It is. Uh, the one in do, I, do I get a bum? You don't, you don't. Because if you'd have got that wrong, you should be on this <laughs> podcast, sir. You're not even English. True. You're not British. That is You're a good English. point. You're not yes, British. The national religion. If there is one institution which binds this country together, it's a national health service. The fact that people can go and get health treatment at the point of need for no cost. It is the literally the one thing which you cannot seriously change. Yes, we, we can argue and say that consecutive conservative governments are trying to kill it by a series of paper cuts. But no serious politician will stand up and say we need to get rid of the National Health Service. It's such a bedrock to post-war Britain. That is brought in by Clem Attlee and his government. And it's a landmark. There's a general point about the Labour Party that at this point in time, this is the Labour Party at the peak of their confidence that there was a kind of historiography going on at this time, which said, look, Labour is on a an unstoppable forward march. The world will get better and Labour will make the world better. Confidence is very high and this feeling is that there's a forward march and that's going to change. But at this point, they're on a real high point. Yes, completely correct. And I've pointed to the fact that there was this sense, and yes, left of centre politics is probably at its high point, really throughout the world. You're going to have, in the process of decolonialisation, so many of these new countries are going to lean leftwards for their economic and social models. And the Labour Party in Britain is just a manifestation of that. I have another couple of quotes, if I can throw them at you, on that line about Labour's view of itself. Hartley Shawcross, who's the Labour minister in 1946, says, we are masters at the moment, and not only for the moment, but for a very long time to come. And then Harold Wilson himself will say later, that Labour is a natural party of government. I just think that's quite interesting because what we'll see, of course, over the rest of the half century is a lot more Conservative government than Labour government. One thing to also note about this government in 1945 to 1950, let's get us to 1951 because there is going to be two elections. One of the key things to remember about this post-war period is that this utopian spirit is going to lead to massive growth in the economy where we're trying to rebuild our cities. And I've hinted at with that, with the New Towns Act, that there is this real kind of appetite to rebuild, physically rebuild Britain. And one of the ways that we're going to do this is by having more labour. And we get more workers from the colonies, from the empire. So in 1948, the Empire Windrush is going to bring 1,000 and 27 passengers, and a couple of stowaways, actually, from Jamaica to London. No. And this oh, is that your, going is that to your be, parents? No. My mum would have been one at the time. 
I don't think she'd be stoned away. My dad would have been four. Might have been in somebody's handbag or something. You know what? Many a truthful thing said in jest about mm. how the Empire Windrush is going to give fruit some 50 years later to the Windrush scandal Indeed. because it was very easy for subjects of the Empire to come to Britain. It's an open border. If you're a subject of the British Empire, you could come. This is going to lead to a lot of people not having papers when they're much older, though they legally gained entry, and then they have to prove that they've come here legally, and they couldn't really do that because the government has actually then thrown away. I think this is like in the, the late 20 noughts that the government has decided to burn embarkation papers. So even if you came to Britain with no papers legally, of course, when you came to a port, somebody would take your name down and say that you've come and you've come from this country. Those were destroyed about 15 years ago, which then put the onus with a new regime under one Theresa May on those people who did come here legally, but didn't have passports. And then they could actually be either deported or threatened with deportation. That those rules actually change under another Labour government, don't they? In, 19, yes. in the 1964 administration, when fears of immigration lead to a more restrictive act about who could claim citizenship. There's a whole series of small changes, but the papers, the embarkation papers actually being destroyed, I believe, is under brown or black. I'm not going to argue with that. Yes. Oh, is that right? But, but, it, but then it's Theresa May who has mm. the hostile environment policy, which then you realise in the folly of the, the destroying those papers. The reason why this is incredibly important is because now we have significant non-white immigration into the United Kingdom. And we always say the United Kingdom, but the truth of the matter is, it's to England. If you look at the last census results, almost one in five people in England are now non-white. In terms of the diversity of population in Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, it's way less. It's going to be Birmingham, going to be London, it's going to be Bristol, Leeds, Leicester, and some others as well. Glad you mentioned Leicester there. I thought you were going to miss Leicester for a moment. You should have been criminal, obviously. Leicester is majority-minority. It is indeed, 41% white now, yeah. What's going to be founded here is a British political consensus, which all liberal democracies actually have, a political consensus which goes from the end of the Second World War to, let's say, the mid-1970s to the late 1970s, that there is some level of redistribution of wealth, that there is a mixed economy. So you could actually argue that what those gung-ho Labour politicians said was actually true, because the Conservatives in the 1950s are not going to row back on substantially on any of these social or economic principles which the Labour Party has put in place. What the Labour Party is going to do in the 1950s is have a fight amongst itself as to how far this can go with its Gateskill and the Bevanites because they've won the economic argument. In many ways, I think those statements are correct. It's Thatcher in 79 that's going to really turn the tide on this consensus. You have a Conservative government run under Ted Heath, which is actually going to nationalise some industries. So this model of how you command the economy is something which the Labour Party fundamentally does win the argument, though they're not always in power by any stretch of the imagination. I think you were saying last time, in the last episode, actually, that there is often a habit in British politics where the following government does not try to trash and replace 
the work of the previous government. It doesn't always hold. It certainly won't with Thatcher. But that's what happens in the 1951 and 52 elections, isn't it? That the Conservative Party, Dizzy says, Disraeli says, that in times of great political change and rapid political transition, it will generally be observed that political parties find it convenient to rebaptize themselves. And that's what the Conservatives do for the 1951 and 2 election. They accept, they publish an industrial charter, and they accept that there is now a mixed economy, that there will be labour rights and industrial rights. And as you say, they've therefore come into this new world, which to a large degree, labour has created. So much so have they bought into this that the their manifesto in the 1950 general election is, this is the road. So they're saying, yes, this is the direction we're going in. And we're not going to scare people by saying we're going to take away your free national healthcare. That's gone. That's yeah. so overwhelmingly popular that it'd be political suicide to say that they're going to do that. 50 and 1951 see two general elections. The Labour Party sees its overall majority shrink from 146 just to five in 1950. But Clem Attlee still sees his government as being very popular. He calls another election to have a more workable majority in 1951. But he gets it all wrong. And the Tories are going to come into power. David, over to you, sir. Okay, you want me to pick up? So we've got the... because oh, Yeah, because those fat cats, those plutocrats now come back into power. <laughs> <laughs> so why are you handing it over to me? <laughs> okay, child of privilege that I am. We get the elections of 1551, 52, 51, as you say, very narrow majority for Labour. But Labour, by this point, are tired. They, the radicalism has run out. The Conservative Party take over and they're going to be in power for a long time. And nobody really would have thought in 1950 that this was going to happen. But Churchill runs an administration from 1951 to 55. Churchill also isn't at the top of his game. In actual fact, in 47, the leaders of the party tried to get rid of him. In 1955, there's an interesting development that what the Conservatives run that campaign on is don't let Labour ruin it. And when we're thinking about the influence of political parties on political life, this thing emerges, especially with an element of socialism in the Labour Party, although the Labour Party isn't really a socialist party, but it has socialists within it. The party becomes itself the political battleground, i.e., it becomes very adversarial as saying you can't let the Labour lock back in because they're going to ruin it or you can't let that Conservative lock back in because you'll be worse off under them. So the political party almost becomes the battle itself, as it were. In 55, Churchill finally retires and Eden, Anton Eden, takes over the natural successor to Churchill. It's been expected that he would be the guy that takes over and he's very experienced. He's been foreign secretary. Everybody thinks he's going to just walk into the role. And he drops a complete clangor, of course, in Suez, where Britain's colonial and world power assumptions are exposed as old hat. So there's a period where the Labour Party looks as though they're going to come back. But Macmillan comes in, Harold Macmillan. Harold Macmillan has charisma. He's the, And it's a good time for economic growth. So that benefits the Tory party. 
And Macmillan recasts the Conservative Party around economic change, technology, consumerism. 1959 is the first TV election. And they're very together and coherent, the Conservative Party at this time. So much so that Lord Kilmore in 1961 describes party loyalty as the party's secret weapon. That's what he said. As it happens, Lord Kilmore was then almost immediately sacked without warning by Macmillan, which is deep irony. But in terms of the party politics conversation, party politics is absolutely at the heart of the Conservative Party power in a way that it won't be in more recent times. Can I just quickly jump in? Because there's an interesting thing which I discovered whilst doing my, my extensive research, Mr Crowther. You have rightly identified that old Eden is going to get the boot. Or more to the point, he resigns. He resigns, but really yeah. he's told to take a hike. And this is because of a backbench upset about the way that we've gone and embarrassed ourselves. And actually, the military operation Suez is very successful. <laughs> we take back Suez, but it's the rest of the world specifically the US and the Soviet Union going, you can't do that. This is a different world. You can't pretend like it's pre-1914 going around the world and just doing do whatever the heck you want. And it's our key allies, the Americans, that say, we are not going to support this and we're going to put in some level of economic sanction and then we have to withdraw. The reason why this is really significant is because we talked about the Backbench 1922 Committee which increasingly now plays a pivotal role in determining the course of the Conservative government and who is going to be the leader. They don't when Macmillan becomes the leader. This is going to be the last time that the monarch takes soundings from people and basically goes, I think you could probably do the job. You do it. This is <laughs> the last time. She, Queen Elizabeth is not going to turn round and point at somebody in the Labour Party... It's not that she's taking soundings, but people are talking and ministers are having her ear. And she says, I think that it's Macmillan who has confidence of the majority of senior Tories. So this is going to be the last time that a monarch is kind of in the political mix. Another interesting point looking forward is that in 1950, in the process of losing the election, in the Labour Party, Herbert Morrison is one of their leading lights and will remain so for a while, although Attlee doesn't like him very much and keeps him out. He runs a conference, I think in Beatrice Webb's, around the role of socialism in the Labour Party, because we think of Labour as a socialist party. And in actual fact, the evidence of practice is that in government, the Labour Party isn't really a socialist party. They're a social demo democratic party. And Herbert Morrison runs this conference where there's this big bust up between the socialist wing of the party and the more right wing side of the party that's more of a social democrat. And this is a fault line that runs throughout Labour's history in the 20th and indeed 21st century. Tony Blair will return to it by having Clause 4 famously changed. And there's another bust up, I think, in the 1950s also around Clause 4 where they try to get it changed, but don't manage it. Mm. Clause 4, incidentally, is about securing the means of production for the workers. Mm. And that's not removed until the phony Blair's time. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting in terms of what was happening to Labour at the time during this Conservative period of power. Uh, and I think it's interesting to note maybe one of the key ways of which the Labour Party goes about trying to redefine itself 
it's all he always does that in opposition. Whereas what we've had with this latest two administrations of the Conservative Party, they've done it whilst being in government. What opposition is supposed to do is to make you sit down and reflect. But the Conservative Party can actually now do this whilst actually still being a governing party, which is not really the way government's supposed to work. But you're completely correct that Hugh Gateskill is on the right of the Labour Party and he's the leader for the tail end of the 50s or 60s. And he's seen as a moderniser. There's an argument about let's nationalise even more things and then how much of a mixed economy should there actually be. And Hugh Gateskill is going to be the leader that the Labour Party never has. He's very much for a mixed economy and drawing a relative line to any more nationalisation. Wilson, by the end of this period in power, by by 1964, the Conservative government has begun to get tired in that way that happens. Macmillan begins to be seen, I think somebody describes him as the last Edwardian, and the Conservative seems to have this grousemore image that somebody talks about of the rather privileged bastions of establishment, as it were, and that begins to tell against them. But first, we do need to really put the death throes into this 13-year period of Conservative rule. As you've said, there is great economic growth. We've talked about decolonialisation, which starts under the 1945 to 1950 government, but it does pick up speed by the end of the 1950s, also because of Suez as well, this great embarrassment that Macmillan says, the wind of change will blow through Africa. Could I just say, mm-hmm. I've rarely heard such an excellent Macmillan impression. Thank you. It's probably worth noting I've never heard a Macmillan impression. <laughs> but there you go. I think the week that was used to do lots of Macmillan impressions. So there. I can imagine. <laughs> but there is a scandal in 1963, which breaks forth the Profumo mm-hmm. scandal, where one John Profumo, Secretary of State for War, is caught having an affair with, with a call girl who's also sleeping with a Soviet naval attaché. And it's also the start of tabloid titillation. If you really sit down and think about it, this is played out in all of the press. John Profumo resigns, but also it's a finger is pointed really at that conservative administration as being corrupt and not really having the ideological energy anymore. And Macmillan is also now a very old man. He has ill health and he's talking about going and he's replaced by Alec Douglas Hume. And it was seen as somewhat of a controversial move because there were other people who seen as being the coming men. But he takes over the leadership, but he's not going to last very long because we have a revitalised Labour Party under Harold Wilson because Hugh Gateskill, who is seen as the uh, the moderniser of the Labour Party, is more right-leaning. He also dies quite suddenly. So Harold Wilson becomes this new young leader of the Labour Party. And it's a time of the swinging 60s. The Beatles are conquering America. British popular culture is bestriding the world. Britney's feeling confident. Douglas Hume delays calling a general election for as long as possible. And of course, the term of a parliament is only five years. So this actually means that the pre-election process is actually going to be quite long because everybody knows there has to be election in 1964. The Labour Party goes into it 
thinking, oh, we got this one in the bag. They won the London local elections. Though the Conservatives aren't necessarily completely and utterly spent. There are two or three by-elections that they do win in the run-up to the 1964 election as well. But Labour really feels like young, new Britain. And it campaigns with a manifesto of let's go with Labour. So the election is held in October 1964 and the Labour Party win only narrowly, but they've secured a parliamentary majority of some four seats and this ends 13 years of opposition. Now, I believe you have an interesting fact. Yes, I have an interesting fact, Royfield, about the 1964 election. The 1964 election was the peak of class voting because it's probably again worth saying that at this point political parties are very organized around class and they continue to be but that will get a slightly more messy story especially when we come to Thatcher for example but in 1964 it's the peak of class voting where the labor support among manual workers rose to its peak level of about 57 to 64 percent so the direction of travel will then slowly change over time that was a very interesting fact, David. Well done. So this government is only going to last for two years because this majority is quite small. But there is a really important act which is passed in 1965. It's the Race Relations Act. It's the first bit of legislation in the United Kingdom to address racial discrimination. And it outlawed discrimination on the grounds of colour, race or ethnic or national origins. And just to put this in context, that point, I think there are a million non white Brits. But routinely, if you're going, let's say, to try and rent a flat, black people and people of South Asian origin would see signs saying no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. So not only were people of skin colours other than white discriminated against, but it was routine to say, I will not rent this room out to an Irish person. Incredibly important in terms of cementing fairness in modern post-war Britain. Labour have a very small majority, so they're going to have another election just two years later. And the result is a landslide victory for the Labour Party. But now Labour is going to have a much larger majority of 98 seats. So this is where actually now they can actually get things done. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So this Labour government with, I was going to say Cool Britannia, but Cool Britannia is, is, uh, is Blair in the 90s. But with the swinging 60s whistling in everybody's ears, this new government comes into place with an expansion of the welfare state, but also really interesting things like the creation of the Open University. They reform the educational system, raising the school leaving age to 16. The abolition of the death penalty for murder that had been so many notable miscarriages of justice where after somebody had been hung for murder we've discovered that either they didn't do it or at least they were coerced and people just say no this isn't right the state should not be taking lives we have divorce reform which makes it much easier for couples to divorce which actually means women uh, much easier for women to be able to get rid of their feckless husbands 
1967, we have the Sexual Offences Act, which decriminalises homosexuality in private between two men aged over 21. So there's kind of really important kind of social markers that which this government puts down. In 1970, Wilson, who is quite popular, is going to call another general election. But this is going to be a surprise victory for the Conservative Party under Edward Heath. The Wilson government has a central place in Labour historiography, whereas the Attlee administration had this been this great success which established the basis of the post-war welfare state. The Wilson government came at a time of very difficult economic change. The industries where workers voted Labour routinely were beginning to decline, and there's a significant traditional industry decline starting from this point and which will go forward. So the Labour government of Wilson is seen as a bit of a betrayal, a failure of the great forward march. And this is where we begin to see some of Labour's confidence going, a bit more introspection about what went wrong at this point. And Labour in particular, because they're a progressive party which is trying to change things rather than a conservative party which is trying to keep things the same, need good economic times in order to be successful because they have to do things and spend money, as it were. And therefore, in difficult economic times, the Conservative Party is always likely to do better than the Labour Party. And this, in a sense, is what happens to Wilson. He hasn't got the money to spend. There's some very serious... Yes, I think that's fair. And what we haven't really talked about is the slow degrading of the British economic situation, at least compared to our competitors. So I forget exactly when West Germany goes past us in terms of GDP, but it most definitely has by, let's say, 1970. There is a post-war miracle in West Germany aided by the Marshall Plan. So its economy is going to be then bigger than Britain. So Britain is suffering from lack of growth compared to its competitors, but then also much higher inflation. And so by the end of the Wilson term, it feels like there is something wrong with the British economy, which is probably one of the reasons why in June 1970, there is a surprise victory for the Conservative Party under Edward Heath, sometimes called Ted Heath. And they have a majority of 30 seats. And on election day, it rained. This is used as one of the excuses as the reason why maybe Labour Party supporters didn't come out in sufficient numbers because it was a bit of a foregone conclusion. The weather was a bit bad. Oh, we know going to get in. We won't vote. Very obviously, it was much more than that. However, Wilson is still relatively popular in the country, most definitely with, with Labour supporters. So he's going to lead the party through opposition. And we are now in my living memory. I am in 1971. I am seven years old. So I can remember something about Heath. And do you know, what do you think I remember about Heath's government? Uh, well, Nothing, no, but a nipper. Uh, three day week. He liked, three day week. He liked to wear a sailor's cap and play the piano. He did indeed. I remember my father hoarding sugar and petrol in the, in the shed at the bottom of the garden. We used to have brown water filled in the bath. So we had some water. We loved it because there was power cuts all the time. So we had all these candles and we were having a great time. And our parents were having a hideous time. And it, it's a story of poor industrial relations, economic downturn, stagflation, trade union radicalism on the growth in the wake of the failure of the Wilson government or as it was perceived. So in 1974, we have an election which is called by Heath under the banner Who Rules 
Britain. Ian Gilmore commented on Ted Heath. He was politically naive and he talked about Ted Heath's fatal tendency to act as a national statesman, so subordinating the interests of his party to those of his country. I think this is when there's a vote on the EU or the mm. EEC at this time. Is there not, which is very significant. It's a significant period, but it's very contentious. And Heath's government is seen essentially to have failed. And therefore, he calls this election in 1974 to give him a vote of confidence. And guess what happens? He loses to Labour. One other thing about that election, actually, in 1974, another significant thing is the rise of the Scottish National Party really starts at this point. And I think at the time, people still saw it as a bit of an anomaly. But by the late 70s, there's going to be more Scottish Nationalist MPs. Through the 80s, they slowly accrue more. But it's only going to be really be in the early 2000s that people go, crumbs, there's another party in Scotland here, which is actually vying for seats in traditional Labour constituencies. I could be wrong about this, but I think that by 1997, the Conservative Party don't have any MPs in either Scotland or Wales. Is that right? That's completely right. They only have either 17 or 19 in the Midlands and the North. They are literally wiped out. They get reduced to really being a South East party, which is what they are. Anyway, anyway, let's have <laughs> prejudice come into this neutral telling. <laughs> We've had a bit of that in this episode, I have to say, so far. So what we haven't talked about, but you have now pointed us in that direction, is the European Economic Community, which starts off in the 1950s as the steel and coal community with the Benelux countries and Germany, France and Italy. It's a way of them being able to trade commodities between themselves frictionless, helps rebuild their economies pretty quickly which then becomes the European Economic Community. We have this long-running political debate on both sides of the political aisle as to whether we should actually join this. Macmillan wants to join as early as 1959, but it doesn't happen because de Gaulle vetoes Britain joining. Fundamentally, says Britain will be too powerful. It's going to put a spanner in Franco-German relations. But by the early 1970s, this is seen as one of the ways in which we can actually recapture our economic mojo. Increasingly, we are trading with Europe as opposed to the old empire, which is literally all gone now. Gone are the days of New Zealand butter. If we're getting our butter from anywhere, we're getting it from Europe. So we join in 1973, though it's interesting that it's the conservatives who are kind of pro. And if anyone's kind of anti-Europe back then, it's the Labour Party who see this as a cabal of capitalists, and we want no part of that. This is going to more or less flip in a generation and a half later, and it's going to be elements of the Conservative Party that say its remit has gone way above and beyond economic cooperation. They're now meddling in British sovereign affairs, and we need to take control of our borders, etc. That there's going to be a referendum, which is actually going to happen under... Wilson just to ratify this decision that we've joined the European Economic Community. So we have two elections in 1974 where the Labour Party is going to come out both times as being the largest party. Wilson calls the election again in October and is going to win just about a workable majority and economic position all the way through the 1970s is degrading. What really preempts the, the three-day week is the oil crisis in the Middle East. 
and things just get worse. We don't have the money by the middle of the 1970s to do quite basic things. We have to go to the IMF and, and get sizable loans. This is for shame for, for the British people and the British economy. By the middle of the 1970s, that Ted Heath has gone, replaced by his former Secretary of State for Education and Science, one Margaret Thatcher, who I remember was always called Thatcher Milk Snatcher, because one of the pioneering things that the Labour Party had set up after the Second World War wasn't just that we're going to have expanded secondary education, but also we're going to give school kids milk because it's going to be good for their calcium, good for their bones. And one of the ways of penny-pinching the educational budget was to get rid of free milk. Now, I, for one, hated milk, but I was a milk monitor, which meant I handed out the milk to other people in the class. So, so you're the child of privilege here, aren't you, Brown? <laughs> if you call privilege taking something which is free, but Margaret Thatcher is going to become the leader of the Conservative Party because Conservatives are just disappointed with Heath. And I think you've, you're right to point out that he acted in the national interest. So, so he would nationalise industries. The economy is in a slow tailspin. And he's doing things which many conservatives think are not conservative and not conducive to freeing up the market. And then he's a loser. He's lost a second election. So Thatcher now arranges of a backbench rebellion and she becomes the leader of the opposition. First woman to lead a major political party in Europe, let alone the United Kingdom. So you have this female leader of the opposition And all of a sudden, the opposition just feels very different. And you have a Labour Party, which is now going to be led for the next three years from 1976 to 79 by James Callaghan. Harold Wilson, popular to the very end, decides to resign. And nobody sees this coming. We now know that he was suffering from the effects of dementia and He knew that, but many people around him didn't even realise, but he knew that he wasn't really up for the job and literally on on the spot just resigns. James Callaghan becomes the leader of the Labour Party. The Labour Party goes into the Lib Lab Pact, has a, a pact with the Liberal Party to help get some of its legislation through. The economic clouds are just getting darker and darker. So much so that in the winter of 1978-79, it's called the winter of discontent, with a wave of industrial unrest because workers need more pay because inflation is so high. If Callaghan had called an election in the winter of 1978, the chances are that the Labour Party would have actually been re-elected. It actually wasn't that unpopular, but it's going to be the winter of discontent, which is going to really do for the Labour Party. One of the most famous political ads in British history is going to be one of the things which puts a nail into Labour's coffin in that May election in 1979. The advertising firm Saatchi and Saatchi, who work for the Conservatives Party, have a poster and it just says, Labour isn't working. And it's just a queue of people, a snaking queue of people, which is supposed to be the unemployment lines. And it's incredibly effective. And then we have Margaret Thatcher becoming the first female Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. One of the interesting things about Thatcher would Mm. say is that we've talked about conservative pragmatism all the way through this these series of podcasts, and that has been a feature of the Conservative Party. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think it was Royds Boson coined that phrase, I think, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
Thatcher is a radical departure from that philosophy. She is a radical free market politician rather than a traditional conservative. And at the beginning of her period in office, you see her, the party factions within the Conservative Party, just like the Labour Party, there's a range of different factions and different views. And the wets, as they were called at the time, the sort of more left-wing side of the party, gradually get squeezed out through a series of political events. The traditional Tories, another faction of very conservative social values, are also in trouble. And the group that really wins are the free market Tories, the radicals. Chris Patton, one of the leading ministers during the Thatcher years, but on the left of the party, said that the Conservative Party always had two wings, but it was now trying to fly on one wing, i.e. the free market. So it's, it's a real, really fundamental change in the way the Conservative Party runs for a while. And I think that gets, it rebalances itself, but only after more than a decade of Thatcher government. So Ian Gilmore, again, to quote him, said that, talked about the interwar Conservative governments, that they made plenty of mistakes, but they never became infected by ideology, he said. Now the Conservative Party is infected by the ideology of free market economics and for the first time really consciously unwinding the post-war consensus and the things that Labour had done. Nationalisation gets rolled back, for example. There is a series of anti-trade unions legislation and true to say by the end of Callaghan's government it is a mess there are strikes all over the place a lot of many hours lost to strikes rubbish on the streets it's chaos and there is therefore a public will to support Thatcher when she brings in a whole load of anti-trade union legislation which she does in chunks rather than as Heath had done in one great big 1971 Industrial Relations Act. And so she gets a little bit much more strategically canny. And in 1984, of course, there is the horror of the confrontation with the core of the Labour Party support in the miners and the long, vitriolic, year-long miners' strike. Tories prepare for that confrontation. It is a war. Thatcher's style also becomes increasingly autocratic. And in actual fact, this is one of the things that will eventually bring her down. She begins to lose the populist touch, which she genuinely has at the beginning, in policies like selling of council houses, for example, although we suffer from it now. Very popular, very populist. And she can't avoid the fact that Thatcher had a lot of public support. But her management style is increasingly brutal. So the cabinet from 1981 onwards became a process of favourites of the ruling monarch, as it were, Thatcher. And by 1990, one of the conservative commentators, a chap called Julian Critchley, remarked that disloyalty was now the Conservative Party's secret weapon. Whereas before, it had been all about loyalty and party cohesion. The way Thatcher runs the roost is very different, both in terms of ideology and in terms of her management style. And the thing that's going to ultimately pull her down politically is the community charge or the poll tax. You're a historian, David. The poll tax, historically, <laughs> how has that gone down with us English? It's interesting you should mention that, Roy Fergus, in 1381, 
There was indeed a poll tax introduced by Richard II, which resulted in the Peasants' Revolt. Several months of chaos, which was ended by brutal repression. But in the modern idiom, of course, there are vast poll tax riots and meetings and protests. And Heseltine, Thatcher's arch enemy, as it were, one of from the wet side of the party, comes back under her successor and has to put things right. And her successor is going to be one John Major. But just before we, we talk about the Major years, I just wondered if there's a podcast you could recommend for me. I could maybe get more information on the the Presence Revolt. It's interesting you should mention that, but there's an extremely fine podcast called The History of England, oh. which goes through the history of England in an extremely amusing fashion, from soup to nuts. Through the Thatcher years, we've had somewhat of an internal fight for the soul of the Labour Party, the left. And not only do we have a fight for the soul of the Labour Party, but we have the creation of a new party, the Social Democratic Party, which comes out of the defectors from the right wing of the Labour Party, led by cabinet ministers Roy Jenkins, David Owen, Shirley Williams. There was another one, but he's not that important. No one ever remembers him. And they <laughs> form an alliance with the Liberals. So the alliance is called the SDP Liberal Alliance. And... For a period of time, their popularity in, in polls is as high as 50%. People do really think there's going to be a breakthrough in British politics, that the old stranglehold of Labour and Tory is going to be gone. So confident were they that David Steele, the leader of the Liberal Party, felt emboldened to say in 1981 at the Liberal Party conference, go back to your constituencies and prepare for government. Now, you had to wait a rather long time for that. It's going to be 2010. But still, such was their bounce in the polls. So you have a defection from the right of the Labour Party, and then you have the centre and the left of the Labour Party really also then fighting over the direction of the Labour Party. And you have Michael Foote, who's going to be the leader, who's seen as somewhat left-wing, but out of touch with modern British mores. He then is replaced by Neil Kinnock, who tries to reform the Labour Party. We get the delightfully named faction, don't we, called Millicent's Tendency. I always loved Millicent Tendency. What a lovely name, Militant Tendency. What a gentle... <laughs> well, what they wanted was social revolution. Just a tendency towards overturning society and changing things. <laughs> oh, I love that. Anyway, yes, and they, as you say, they have to get rid of the Millicent Tendency. Kinnick does it. And so the revisionist social democratic view, that moderate part of the party, which had always actually been the theory of the Labour leadership, the Parliamentary Labour Party leadership. And for a while, the socialists look as though they're winning the story. But in the end, the Social Democrat win comes back and Kinnock wins that battle effectively. The other thing I think to note is about the SDP is about how close they come to being the party of opposition. So I can't quite remember the figures, but they're within about one or two percentage points in terms of percentage of the vote of the Labour Party. And they are within an ace of becoming the party of opposition. But because of the way first past the post is structured, they win a tiny number of seats by comparison, 40 or something like that, whereas Labour win about 200. It's a, another sign of the total importance of first past the post and the impossibility of creating new parties within the British system as it stands. What happens with them is they come second in a lot of seats, but they don't win them. 
but they come second literally everywhere. And the first past the post system, as you said, only unites those who actually win the seat. And because of that disparity between the amount of votes that they get and then the lack of seats, that the Liberal Democrats is going to be formed when there is a merger at the end of the 1980s between the SDP and the Liberal Party. They really do espouse proportional representation. And of course, actually, Tony Blair, when he appears, as you'll get to in a moment, he very famously actually stands up and regrets the fact that there are two progressive parties and the effectively the death of new liberalism. And one of the interesting questions is, could new liberalism have incorporated the working class vote back in before the First World War? And actually, it's the First World War and the split within the Liberal Party around between Asquith and Lloyd George that really does for new liberalism and allows the Labour Party to take over. And it's very interesting that Tony Blair, who is a social democrat, not a socialist, which is why the so I used to have somebody in the office called Kate, who absolute Labour supporter through and through, absolutely hated Tony Blair. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. But the point is that he regrets the death of new liberalism because the two-party system means that the progressive vote is always split, whereas the conservative vote is not. I don't know if you've got a crystal ball for the 2024 election, but that might not no longer be the case in terms of right-leaning politics. But anyway. Could be the Reform Party. Uh, yes, that's a, yes, indeed. Uh, the 1992 general election, you've had the Labour Party who have lost the previous three elections and come into this with a leader, Neil Kinnock, thinking that now is Labour's time because the Tories have seen as being a run out of ideological energy. We've had the reforming zeal of Thatcher. She's been jettisoned. And you have John Major, who's very obviously just a stopgap figure. He's an Alec Douglas Hume, if ever there was one. But by Jove, if the Conservatives don't actually go and win that election, confounds the opinion pollsters. John Major is able to secure the Conservatives for another term. In a way, it's because John Major feels like a fresh start, doesn't he? He is so very different from Thatcher. And we'd all suffered, if that's the right word, under Thatcher for so long and increasingly tutorial style. Yes, and also his rise before the poll tax kerfuffle, he was made the chancellor, literally had had no public profile at all. So I think that goes to reinforce the fact that things felt new, things felt different enough for enough people. But then also we have to comment on the fact that the majority of British newspapers are conservative. So there was always this drumbeat through the 1980s of Labour being militant, Labour being out of touch, Labour being radical. And you were right to point out that the selling off of council houses was incredibly popular. This allowed many working class families to own their own homes for the first time. And one of the key markers of somebody who had bought their council houses, they changed their front door because all the doors were used to be uniform, but now you could have your own front door on your ex-council house property. Those types of aspirational working class who felt that they had benefited from these Tory reforms were not very quickly going to give that up and then go and vote for a party who at least they perceived was going to roll that back. It's also interesting socialist. I'm not sure of my facts here, but I think somebody said but that... David, then this is the right podcast for you. Go. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm fitting into the brown style. Cheeky. But the traditional Labour Party, as was Callaghan Wilson, was feeling like the old Labour Party that appealed to the industrial working class and the industrial decline had changed the profile so that many more people no longer considered themselves to be working class that might once have done so. And yet the Labour Party was still appealing to those voters. And it, it required a sea change and a much bigger entry into the middle classes for Labour to win power again, as they did in 1997. So the Labour Party have a new leader whilst they're yet again in, in opposition. John Smith becomes the leader of the Labour Party. Scott, and he starts talking about a thing called New Labour, that Labour has to now adopt or acquiesce to some of the Conservative Party's policies, which were brought in under Thatcher, and it needs to actively try and win over the middle class. John Smith is going to die after two years, which leads Tony Blair and Gordon Brown to become the duopoly, who are going to really be the lines of the Labour Party in opposition and then in power for the next 16 years. Tony Blair is always trumpeting new Labour. Labour has changed. We're not going to take away your feeling of aspiration anymore, that we aren't just the party of the workers, as you said. And by the mid-90s, John Major, yes, he's seen as a nice guy. Conservatives by 1997 have been in power for 18 years, literally a generation. There are people who've grown up and are going to vote in that election who don't remember the Labour Party, let alone anybody else being in power. And things are really different in Britain by the end of the 1990s as they were in the late 1970s. The economy has rebounded. We are much more confident than we were when we were almost called the sick man of Europe. London is dominating the British economic space in a way that it literally had never done so before. I think some 25% of our GDP is fundamentally London. London is seen as an incredibly expansive and sexy worldwide city. Just as we had the swinging 60s, we now have Cool Britannia with Britpop, but also an acceptance that the non-white Brits and English people were never going to go home. By the 1990s, there's a real acceptance that Brits and English people can come in all colours. And as we progress through the 1990s, we have the Maastricht Treaty, which gives us deeper political ties to Europe. And it's no longer the European Economic Community, now it's the European Union. This leads us to the 1997 election, where you have this old seemingly grey man with rather large glasses, John Major, contrast that with Tony Blair, who seems young and youthful. And we have a landslide, David, I tell you, a landslide. The Labour Party going to win 418 streets. Now, I've always thought that maybe it was the economic ERM problems that caused the major turn or failure of government. But actually, I think it may not be about Tony Blair or hope and optimism. It may simply be about the size of John Major's philtrum. Because <laughs> it has an extremely large philtrum and it's, it's very disconcerting. I thought John Major was also a lovely man, actually, but he did have an unacceptable philtrum. I'm sorry, it's just the word. You know what? I can't really disagree with that. And to think that him and Edwina Curry were going at it like knives. Oh, as stop well. it. Stop it. Move so on. Move on immediately. Time. We didn't know that. That came out sometime later. We are going to have 
the Labour Party back in power from 1997 to 2010. As David has alluded to, this is a swinging defeat for the Conservatives. So after 18 years of Conservative government, it's going to be the party's worst defeat since 1906. So the party has no MPs outside of England and only 17 MPs north of the Midlands and less than 20% of the MPs in London. This is bad stuff. Tony Blair is going to go on to win another two elections and he's going to give up power in 2007 to his buddy Gordon Brown. They act as a duopoly. Yes, Tony Blair is the Prime Minister, but Gordon Brown is his Chancellor, who's the Finance Minister, and they had an agreement that after a certain amount of time, then Tony Blair would actually give up the leadership and hand it to him. Some milestones. Tony Blair is going to lead the UK into a NATO-led military intervention in Kosovo. And he's very much, he sees that as an ethical foreign policy. We are defending the rights of the Kosovans for self-determination. But unfortunately, the UK is going to join the US invasion of Iraq. It's one of the stains on Tony Blair's legacy that to this day, he doesn't admit that a mistake was made, that there was no evidence of weapons of mass destruction. But this government is going to be incredibly popular. Britain's economy is growing at a clip by the end of the 1990s and through the early 2000s. And there is confidence all around Britain. The party is going to win a general election in 2001. And it still has 413 seats. And then in 2005, where it loses a few, but still has 355. It feels like the Labour Party is the party of government. One of the things which I think we have to see is a grave political mistake that Tony Blair makes is with the accession of Eastern European countries into the EU that British government had the ability to bar Eastern Europeans from coming en masse to Britain, but decided to waive that, thinking that only 30,000 Poles, for example, would move to Britain with Eastern European accession. All the other countries of the EU, with the exception of one, which I believe is Denmark, decided to stop mass Eastern European migration. We didn't in Britain. So it meant that in the mid-2000s, in 18 months, over one million Poles moved to Britain. Now, regardless if you think that's a good or a bad thing, it meant that the right-wing press made hay with the fact that all of a sudden Polish builders and plumbers were in the UK and out-competing or driving down the price of manual labour. This then gives fuel to a one Nigel Farage, who is leading a party called UKIP, who had been sceptical about the benefits of us being in the EU for some time. There had always been a sceptical wing from, let's say, the mid-1980s in the Conservative Party. As we noted before when we joined, the two parties' positions on this flipped the other way. Labour is against it. The Tories are most definitely for it. By the time that we get to the mid-2000s and onwards, the scepticism is nearly all on the side of the Conservative Party. And some Conservatives find themselves pulled rightwards by this small fringe party called UKIP, who can do very well at European elections by saying no to European immigration, no to further integration with the European now union, that it's encroaching on British sovereignty and Parliament should be sovereign. 
And this is given wind by Tony Blair allowing so many Eastern Europeans to come to the country. So the Labour Party loses the 2010 election under now Gordon Brown. But it's a hung parliament. And we don't really do hung parliaments. We had one in the 1970s. But instead of having a minority government, David Cameron, who's now the leader of the Conservative Party, goes into power with the Liberal Democrats. And uh, so the Conservatives have 306 seats and the Liberal Democrats have 57. This allows them to have a working majority. Disraeli very famously said, Britain does not love coalitions. History is viewed from the vantage point of 2023. That is right, because we view that government 13 years ago as actually being a Conservative government. The Liberal Democratic partners who were held governmental office and it's the first time since the 1920s that there has been liberals in government or literally seen as collaborators and it's a stunningly bad decision wasn't it i mean you can understand why nick clegg did it because he thought that we can actually have some power we can actually do something here what are we in politics for but it turns out to be a stunningly poor decision partly because he goes back on promises not to re- renege on to introduce tuition fees which has been a, an article of faith he does it and there's a very poor proposal for PR, which fails completely. And he torches the Liberal Democrat Party, and it is still not recovered to this day. In the same way that Cameron, of course, torches his country. (laughs) (laughs) I'm being party political here, aren't I? I'd like to formally apologise. But Cameron, (laughs) the ultimate party politician who torches his country's future on the altar of the Conservative Party over Brexit. My least favourite Prime Minister of all time. Let's just stay with the Liberal Democrats just for now. Just to give you an example of their political decline. 2010 election, they had 57 seats. 2015 election, they go down to eight seats. So they can literally put all of them back in a telephone box and have a party conference. That is how people view the Liberal Democrats having all this promise. And as you said, David, they thought they could moderate this Conservative government. This Conservative government is going to bring in austerity. What we haven't talked about is the 2008 global financial crisis. The Gordon Brown, who's seen as a safe pair of hands economically, he'd always had really great, great plaudits when he was Chancellor, he's now Prime Minister, manages to stabilise the British economy, including bailing out and nationalising a couple of banks. So the economic system doesn't collapse, but it is most definitely in peril. By the time that Cameron, David Cameron, comes into power in 2010, he and his chancellor, George Osborne, say, we need a prolonged period of austerity. We're going to tamp down on public spending because we need to get our our public finances, our fiscal probity, back in whack. So we have this long period of austerity, relative austerity. We're not spending enough on the National Health Service or on the road. Come 2015, David Cameron finds himself increasingly at war with more right-leaning, radical conservative politicians who are emboldened by, by UKIP. And he says, and he makes a pact. I'll put it a little bit more delicately than, than you did, Mr Crowther. He has a pact with them whereby he says, if we get through this election, I will call a referendum on our participation in the European Union, thinking as most wise and sober people did at that time that of course the British people would never reject membership of the European Union 
but we all know what happened in June 23rd, 2016. David, would you like to tell us what happened? Yes, we voted to leave the European Union. We did so. England and Wales voted in favour of leaving. Scotland and Northern Ireland voted against leaving, but overall, by a very narrow majority, what I think was a referendum that was supposed to be advisory had led us into where we are now. I must stop being party political. But anyway, a very momentous decision indeed on a smallest of majorities. 51% and some change vote to leave. That Brexit referendum campaign was defined by a leave and a remain campaign. The Leave campaign had key figures like Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, who we mentioned before, saying that if the UK left the EU, it would gain control of its borders and immigration policies and free itself from the, from the constraints of the EU regulators and bureaucracy. It also argued that leaving the EU would allow the UK to save money by no longer contributing to the EU budget, and that would boost the economy. The Remain campaign was led by David Cameron, and somewhat half-heartedly by the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, who argued that remaining in the EU would be in the best economic interests of the country and also allow the country to continue to have a strong voice in EU decision-making. And also leaving would risk putting our influence on the world stage, putting it in jeopardy. We all know what happened. And for the next three years, there was a bonfire in British politics. Theresa May becomes a second female Prime Minister. David Cameron, after seeing the result of that referendum, falls on his sword. The only honourable thing that he could do, according to you, he's now burnt the country. I thought it was a very bad decision, actually. I think if somebody was going to give us a chance to negotiate our way through Brexit with a bit more elegance than we did, it would have been the person who was against it, but nonetheless put it to the country. I thought him resigning was an act of cowardice. Goodness, we are getting your true political colours. To be fair, I've hinted at mine all the way through this. <laughs> anyway, I just haven't been as... If you call that a hint, I feel. <laughs> anyway, Theresa May finds herself in power, but with an increasing amount of right-leaning MPs in her Conservative Party who now say they want a hard Brexit as opposed to regulatory alignment and maybe stopping in the single market. The one thing which this referendum was not about was about the type of Brexit. But it comes apparent we could leave the governance of the EU, but still have a single market. But I think the issue of immigration is so totemic that having control, at least notional or theoretical control of British borders, pushes many Conservative MPs to say to hell with the economic benefits of being in a single market, we need to control our borders. And then she's forever fighting this battle with the right-leaning elements of her party. She decides to have an election to bolster her position, having a softer Brexit in 2017, and ends up losing many seats and technically losing her majority. And she has to rely on an Ulster Unionist party to give her a working majority. This upends her true leverage over the whole Brexit situation. It's the tail wagging the dog. She then has to leave power and Boris Johnson in parliamentary coup d'etat becomes the leader 
of the Conservative Party with the slogan, let's get Brexit done. It's going to be like a microwave dinner. It's going to be very simple. I can negotiate a great deal with Europe, but actually we're just going to pull out. It's going to be a hard Brexit and there is going to be no economic downsides. The British people decide that they've had enough of the three years worth of wrangling over Brexit. We've had an election during this Brexit fight. We've had a referendum. In effect, the 2019 election is the second referendum on Brexit and people are just tired and they trust Boris Johnson that he can get Brexit done. The Conservatives return with 365 seats. Labour is reduced all the way down to 203. Brexit is going to be done by Boris Johnson. And I think that's an opportune time for us to end, David. They say that anything that's happened 20 years ago or less is actually not history. No, quite right. Cut out the Brexit stuff. Yeah, we should have stopped to 2003. Can I say a couple of final points about the Labour Party? One of the interesting things, which I think is actually now current, but this might be a bit controversial, is that the socialist wing of the party always had this dilemma about whether to win power or whether to educate their electorate, as it were, i.e. whether they ought to educate people in the benefits of socialism and thereby achieve social change. But innately, Labour is a relatively conservative left-wing party. So as we were saying last time, it was built on trade unionism. And British trade unionism, to a degree, is essentially defensive. It's not necessarily about building a new society with some, with the exception of a few relatively short periods. It's about allowing working people to negotiate pay and conditions on an equal footing with employers. So it's essentially defensive rather than a new society. So there was a quote, a famous quote about the socialist wing of the party that essentially get, get to this point where they're abandoning the working classes, they're basically blaming the working classes for the failure of the Labour Party, is the quote, that they're frustrated that their constituency are not being as radical as they would like them to be. And I think at the centre of the Labour Party problems, there is that basic tension between social democracy and changing of society, which keeps recurring throughout the century. And it's still there, I think. No, I think that's totally fair. We've talked about the Conservatives as being pragmatic and there's been a pragmatic wing to to the Labour Party. There's been a wing which is utopian in terms of building a new Jerusalem. But then it's always mitigated by the fact that it's actually not a revolutionary party. It isn't. We've had various Labour administrations now, Labour governments, and none of them have espoused being a republic. And this is one of the key things which is going to tampen down people's revulsion to the idea of a Labour government in the 1920s. Because I said, wait on a minute, all this equality means we're going to be a republic and it's going to be some level of social revolution. But you're right, it is fundamentally a social democratic party. But like all large political parties, it has various factions and it is a coalition and there is a wing which manifests itself in opposition in the 1950s, let's say the 1970s, has been much more militant and much more leans, leaning towards more radical policies, 
But generally, the right side of the Labour Party wins out. And I suppose one of the high points of this left-leaning Labour Party was the Labour Party on, under Jeremy Corbyn. But it didn't achieve power. And I think one of the things that maybe also differentiates the Labour Party from the Conservative is there's a, an element which is more left-leaning within the Labour Party, centre-to-left, which believes in ideological purity, so can actually stand being in opposition because they'd rather be in opposition and be pure with their ideals. The opposite is true of the Conservative Party historically. No, they want to be in government and being in opposition doesn't mean that they have heroes in opposition. The Labour Party has lots of heroes in opposition, whether it's Hugh Gates Gill or whether it is John Smith, etc., Tony or Bevin. Ben. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Whereas, not for the Conservative Party, being in power is what it's about. Ideologically, until Thatcher, the Conservative Party was about conserving, about ma- yes. maintaining. Yeah. It is naturally going to be less less radical, as it were. What I think we should do, we should offer our good listeners the opportunity to have their say. Only the good ones. So that means the Americans can't opine. Ah, That is racial segregation. It's appalling. So what we'd like to do is invite you to pose a question to us. Now, you can do that in one of two ways. Number one, there is the Facebook group and it is rather healthy at the moment. Why don't you post a question there, and we will put that in the next and the final episode on British political parties. Now, the question can be anything in scope. You can go back all the way to the exclusion crisis. Ask a question about the British political process and or its history, and we'll endeavour to our best to answer it. Also, if you're a member of the Facebook group, there's going to be a link to SpeakPipe. Now, what SpeakPipe is, is a facility whereby you can record your voice for some two minutes. So you'll have the opportunity, if you don't want to write this down, to click on that link and also pose that question via SpeakPipe. And then we can include that in the podcast. I, for one, I'm a man of a modern technology and like Cryther here. So I quite like SpeakPipe because then the listeners can actually hear your voice on the podcast and it feels like community so go onto the facebook group put your question there and we will endeavor to do our best to research and answer it and then also there's going to be a link to SpeakPipe, so you can hear yourself on the podcast asking a question and that will be our fifth and final episode on british political parties have i missed anything out crowther no that is absolutely fine and complete All right then, David, I think we say goodbye. Great. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Look forward to your questions and goodbye. Arrivederci from Birmingham. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.